How is it going, everybody? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you to episode 47 of The Way of the Wolf. So Daniel Wolfson and I actually just finished recording another episode. And as we were sitting here having a conversation, we started covering some really good topics and decided to go ahead and record another episode for all of you. So we've got a, a list of, of talking points and, and questions that he and I have received over the past few months and thought maybe be value added for all of you to kind of hear some of our thoughts on these topics. So with that being said, Daniel, welcome back to the show again. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate it. Thanks Perfect. for having me. All right. So let's go ahead and start off with something that I admittedly didn't really think there was a whole lot of value in and thought that it was kind of silly early on in my career. And that is role playing in a professional setting. Mm. So what are your thoughts on this topic? When, when people say role playing, um, right away, your, your skin kind of like you you start getting goosebumps. You just say, Oh shit. Like, uh, you just remember that time when you first had to role play in front of a classroom, in front of your peers at work, whatever. And you just bombed, mm-hmm. you know, or on zoom, you just yeah. bombed. And, um, I think it's such a great tool. Um, there's a book that I shared with you by Chris Voss. Um, he talks about it. He, he does a, what's called an accusation audit in front of his classroom. And accusation audit would be like, hey, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, this is going to suck. Mm-hmm. But if you're a part of this and if you volunteer or get voluntold, <laughs> you're going to learn more from this than you could ever learn from anything else. So when I'll, I'll be honest, when role play comes around, I, I hate it. It's literally the worst. You Mm -hmm. look away, you're in a room, and you're like, man, please don't call me. But when you do get called, you learn so much from it. So to those people that are afraid, I say embrace it. Mm -hmm. Embrace the suck and learn from it. Yeah, it it is, you know, the first experience I had with it as far as there was a network manager that worked for me a number of years ago. And he was struggling with one of his his peers in the in the organization. And I was like, hey, come on, come on into the office. Let's let's role play. He's like, what? What are you talking about? And I said, I want you to practice this conversation that you're going to have with your peer. What is this going to look like? He's like, well, what, what do you mean? And I was like, sit down. I'm going to be this person. I'm going to be person A. You're going to be you. And we're going to talk through this. Yeah. So as we got into it, I was very real with my responses. I knew the person that he was struggling with, and I basically emulated their personality. And while we were sitting there going through it, he started kind of getting fidgety. He's like, well, and so we went through it a little bit more, and then I'd time out. Okay, so this is kind of what we're seeing here. Why are you feeling that way? Okay, what if you approached your response like this? And so we went through a few iterations of it, and then after it was all said and done, he ended up having that conversation. And it was like he had had a few practice runs already. And so for him, it, it helped him out quite a bit. And then the, the feedback that I received from his peer was, yeah, we had a good conversation, went back and forth. So I do think that there's a tremendous amount of value in it. And, and I've also sat in on, on leadership development courses where managers, people that are, find themselves in maybe a district manager role or they're new to, to managing people, they've never had to give critical feedback. They've never had to go through any sort of progressive, progressive discipline 
action, anything like that. So sitting down and having to have that conversation in a role-playing type environment, there, there is an element of safety, but there's very realness and rawness to it if the person you're role-playing with commits to mm-hmm. it. So absolutely, I agree. There's so much value in, in doing that. It's yeah. kind of nerve-wracking. It is. It is. But it's, it's getting those, those reps in and those practice runs. Do you find yourself uh, role-playing outside of the role-play? Oh, so let me kind of give an example, right? I'll go home and then I'll talk to my kids Mm -hmm. and I'll start going into, well, what do you think if you would say the following? And, and then I sit back two minutes later, I'm like, oh shit, I I think we were just role-playing. Yep. So it's like you, you start picking it up after you're forced to do it, right? And you're accidentally doing it. So Yes. When you put it that way, a lot of uh, kind of the nature of my role and in the business and the, the people that I work with on, on all the different teams that, that I'm fortunate to lead, there's a lot of times when there's friction between people within these different teams. Mm-hmm. And I'll have conversations. I'm kind of giving away my secrets right here on the episode, but <clears throat> maybe having a conversation with somebody and they're struggling and I'll ask them, hey, well... What if you approach the conversation this way? Yeah. Or, yeah. or I can also shed some light and say, okay, well, one of the things you're probably not factoring in is that, that team or that district manager is struggling with this, this, and this, and try to coach them through that. So it also, it's an opportunity to give them sh- or shed a little bit of light on the situation that maybe they're not aware of. So to answer your question, yes, I, I do end up doing that. Really more than just a formal sit down, hey, we're going to role play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's a lot of value in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there is. <clears throat> okay. Anything else on role playing? No, no. No. I think that's it. All right. So here's a big one. How to ask for a discount. I'll, I'm going to go ahead and say that this is something I'm not comfortable with. It, it's kind of a, hey, the price is the price. I, I'm not good at bartering. I'm not good at sales. I'm not good at any of that type of stuff. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this. So I started doing this. My dad told me this many years ago. You don't get unless you ask, right? You don't get anywhere unless you try whatever it is. <clears throat> so I've put that into, uh, and I tried this one time by accident, and it worked. And after that, I started doing it all the time. Um, I think my wife and I, Christy and I were at Kohl's and we had all the stuff and she goes, Daniel, I forgot like my coupons. She's a big coupon clipper, right? She's like, Hey, I forgot my coupon. So, you know, you go to the person that is checking you out, um, to your cashier and, and you, you become a person in front of them, right? You smile, you say, hi, how's your day? And then you say, Hey, I completely forgot, you know, all this, these coupons I had. Do you have anything in the back? Do you have anything in the register, do you have anything back there? There's, if you're a person, if you're normal, if you're nice and polite, they're always going to say yes, always. There, it has never not worked. Interesting. This works exceptionally well in airports. When you get, when you buy a ticket, um, and let's say you and whoever you're traveling with are sitting in a separate section, right? You go to that gate agent in the front. And it really, really works well if they had an asshole right in front of them, right? <laughs> and you're that person that's right behind it, and you create um, you create a sense that you're that you're a person, right? And you you say, hey, this is we're sitting separately, you know, we want to be sitting together. Would you have anything? But first, you smile, you introduce yourself. If that person in front of them is mean, say, hey, 
I'm sorry that you're going through this. And I'm sorry to bother you, but I have a question and I hope you can help me. So be a human and whatever it is that you're asking for, you're going to get. I love it. Oh man. Yeah. I'm glad it's recorded. Try it. And you're going to, you're going to say, Oh my God, I love it. All right. Okay. So one of the things that I've seen a lot of times people in their careers, maybe I've talked a lot about this on the show where people say, Hey, I want to hit that hundred thousand dollar a year threshold. And I see it comes at different points in people's careers, but they get to a certain point and they feel, okay, I've made it. They're kind of on, at that point, they just cruise control and then they live for the weekends. Like, hey, I'm going to go go on a, an overnight trip here or I'm going to go party this weekend or you know whatever that comes out to. But they're just kind of on cruise control and you never see them progress any farther in their career, which is great for some people. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious... For somebody who maybe is has found themselves in that situation, how do you get past that? How do you break through that? I think you have to find yourself first in that situation, and you have to acknowledge to yourself that you're not satisfied with what you're doing at that point, with whatever it may be, whatever career you're in, whatever whatever it is, whatever stage in your organization that you're in, and you have to acknowledge it. And if you're not okay with that, you have to do something about it, but you have to want to do it first. And my belief is always put something new on your resume once every six months, every six months. If you're not adding a trait, however little, however big, then you shouldn't be there. Like a skill or a certification or yeah. something like that. So for me, I'm, <clears throat> I'm in banking. So if I get to a point where I, I know I'm on cruise control and you know when you are, right? Because something happens and you just go, oh, I don't want to do it, you know, because you're comfortable where you are. You're comfortable with the projects that you have going. But if you are in cruise control, you have to take that next step to do something different that you've never done before, which will invigorate you every time. Okay. That's the key. Once you take that step Mm -hmm. and you feel that sense of accomplishment, you got to chase that feeling. Number two, I think, is you have to... If you feel like you're stuck in the same position doing what you've been doing, you have to go to your supervisor or their manager or whoever that may may be and ask for more. Because every single leader, every single supervisor wants their employee to step up. So if you're you're stuck in a position, ask to do more. No one's going to say, hey, Sean, you shouldn't do that. Or we don't want you to do extra. (laughs) Of course, we want you to do more, (laughs) pay you the same. (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, which is actually a good segue. I don't think we're covering it here, but whenever people want to, to do more, but then they want to earn more, well, first, you've got to do more. Right. You can't come to the table and say, hey, I want to earn more, so give me this. Yep. No, no, no. You, you, you do the job first, and then the pay usually comes on the back end mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I pretty much kind of agree with, with everything you shared there. And I think that the the one thing is just really one realizing that you're stuck. Mm-hmm. And if I'm being honest, and I think back <clears throat> probably six years or so ago, I was only leading the IT team, and I had gotten to that point. I was just kind of on cruise control. I was making decent money, happy, and just kind of working out all the time. And but I wasn't really progressing. And after being at that point for a few years, I was like, hmm. Yeah, I meant for more. 
mm-hmm. I got to figure this out. And that's yep. whenever I started going down the HR path and then that turned into a lot of other stuff down the road. But you've got to first realize it and then take action. Right. Yeah. Right. So in, in my industry, I'm, I'm a banker. We see a big gap. We see a big gap in leaders that are, that are 60 and plus people that are about to retire and 40 and under. We're not seeing a difference in that 40 to 60 or 45 to 55 age range. Mm-hmm. How is that in your industry? Oh, man, that's really kind of all over the board. Whenever I think about oil and gas, which is kind of where I spend most of, of my time, <clears throat> you see a lot of people in the the older age ranges that maybe have more senior positions at large publicly traded corporations and then there's also kind of this this entrepreneurial side of things where usually people that have kind of been in oil and gas through their their 20s and they're into their 30s they'll go start up a company and then maybe end up being the CEO of a company with 200 300 employees something like that and they're in the, in their mid 30s <clears throat> but then also in oil and gas it's highly acquisitive so these big publicly traded corporations are going up going out and buying all of these small mom and pop or these entrepreneurial ventures. And so there's kind of a mix. That range is just really all over the place. I, I, can't, I will say the company that I work for today is kind of predominantly younger leaders that are, I would say, mid-40s and, and younger. There's a few that are a little bit older than that, but most of the senior leadership in the corporation is probably 40, 45, somewhere in that range. So at least in the industries that I have exposure in, I don't see as much of a gap just because, and also if you think about how volatile oil and gas is, there's so many peaks and valleys and so many people starting and they'll get laid off by, by Baker and then go start their own company and just depends on what downturn they got laid off in that they started their, their business. So very long-winded way of saying, I, I don't necessarily see that, at least not in oil and gas. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Someone told me a long time ago that if you if you think of bankers and what happened in the mid 80s to late 80s, right? The savings and loan crash, the financial crash, that was a big deal. That was a big deal that taught a lot of bankers uh, what to do, what not to do. So I think people that were you and I were born in in early 80s, right? 81, 82. So as we were progressing into our teenage years, into 17, 18, 19, we knew what we were doing, right? But if we were 10 years younger than that, we would be progressing into college in the late 80s. And our parents would have uh, not advised us to go into banking because of everything that's been happening. So this is where we see if you forward 40 years later, we see that gap of there are no real leaders in their 50s. Very, very far and few in between. So with that said, if you're in the financial industry, step up. That is very interesting. And I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. And as you were kind of going through that, I also realized the reality in oil and gas, there's not a lot of people with higher education. A lot of times these people are just out of high school. And some of them end up becoming multimillionaires with no college degree at Mm -hmm. all. And so whenever you turn back the clock and start thinking about it from that perspective, that's probably why I haven't seen that as much in oil and gas. Very interesting. Hmm. 
Okay. So somebody asked me um, a while ago, and this was a great question that I had a hard time answering, was what is your biggest challenge as a leader? Ooh, people. Yeah. So that's funny. I had written the same thing. Transitioning from an individual contributor. I mean, most people know that my passion was always the technology, the data center architecture, all of that highly, highly technical stuff. Working with a server, working with a switch or a firewall, you don't have to deal with emotion. It's a device and you configure it and it works for the most part. Every now and then it'll break, but it's, it's kind of static in that, hey, there's a configuration, and once you set that configuration, change management plays into it, but if you don't change anything, there's a very high probability that it's going to just continue working until you decommission it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, there's, I mean, obviously things happen, but for the most part, once you, once you do that, it's done. People are constantly varied. They're constantly varied in terms of their emotional response, how they're handling things, their growth. There's so many variables to people. You know, are they having trouble with with their kids or their significant other? That's going to play a big factor into their performance at work. And if they're frustrated struggling with things on the home front, they may end up having issues with some of their peers or other people in the business. And you've got to learn how to navigate that. Mm So for me, and this is going to sound really odd, one of the things that helped me to start to better understand people, which I still to this day definitely don't, I have a a decent grasp, but one of the things that helped me is to start viewing people like data sets, which sounds crazy, I know, but somebody who is used to looking at data and massive amounts of data, once I start factoring in all of these things, okay, I know Daniel is a banker. I know his personality type. I know he has a family. I know he has two children. Like you start factoring all of these things in and I can start to kind of build kind of a, a mental profile of Daniel and how he's going to react. Mm-hmm. And then also if Daniel is struggling with some of his, his peers or counterparts, I might think, hmm, is he having issues at the home front? Like, what's going on? And I can sit down and have a conversation with you. Hey, like, what you know? What's happening here? Let's let's talk through this. Which is, again, that's a very odd way of looking at people. That is something that, that has helped me. And then also just time and experience. Whenever you transition into a leadership role, you become a force multiplier. Your role is no longer, hey, how many servers can I figure can I configure and get up and running? It's hey, how can I ensure that that John and Jay and, and Austin and all of these people are doing their absolute best? And mm-hmm. that's really what it comes down to. Now there are things that I do, like specific tasks that just have to occur, because whenever I look at leaders, there are times when, you know, maybe a leader let me backtrack a little bit. Whenever, whenever I see new leaders, if they step into a leadership role and they think, oh, cool, I've made it. I'm just going to start barking orders. You're going to do what I tell you. That's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. People are not going to end up enjoying working for you and they're not going to give you their all. Right. But when you come to the table and say, oh, man, this is messed up. What can we do to fix it? And you roll up your sleeves and you get all in the middle of it. That's huge. Mm-hmm. So very long-winded way of, of saying learning how to interface people, learning personality 
profiles, learning behaviors, and then also learning how to read people and understand like mm-hmm. what makes them tick. Yeah. Not everyone's the same, right? Exactly. You can't treat all people the same. Well, and even if, if we use that example, Daniel is not the same Daniel that I knew 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So people evolve over time. And as a leader, it's our responsibility to continue to stay engaged, to pay attention, to understand. 20 years ago, Daniel was probably just focused on stacking cash. Mm-hmm. And while he's probably still focused on <laughs> there's other things in your life that are important, you know, the kids, your family, everything that's going on there. So... As people mature and, and evolve, it's important for leaders to, to stay in tune with that, to make sure that if I'm your leader, I'm giving you the things that you need. Yeah. Well, you're a leader. You lead substantially a lot more people than I do. So what is uh, one decision that you wish you didn't make or hadn't made as a leader? So this is interesting. I would say 10 years ago, I could probably give you a laundry list of things. As I reflect back now, I think had I not made those decisions, I would have not learned those lessons that came from it, and I would not be as developed of a leader as I am today. So whenever I think about decisions that I wish I would have made differently, it it's really comes down to, hey, everything unfolded exactly as it should for me to arrive where I am today. So I find... It's kind of wasted energy to look back and wish I had done things differently. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense, makes sense. So you you talked about what you wish you hadn't made. Have you identified your weakness? Everyone talks about I'm strength, right? I have, I can do this well, I can do this very well. What is a true weakness that you have identified personally? Going to an event or walking into a room full of people that I don't know, I am like a turtle in my shell. Yeah. I mean, if there's a dog, I'm in the corner petting the dog. I don't like I that is and it just stems from being such an introvert for the majority of my life. I've been trying to come out of my shell, been trying to grow, starting the channel, starting the podcast. But that's also talking into a microphone and talking into a camera, not a room full of people. I was very fortunate to attend an award event a few weeks ago. And while there were people that I knew there, the vast majority of them, I had no clue who they were. And it took a drink for me to actually loosen up and start having conversations with people. But that is an absolute weakness of mine, of being able to walk into a room full of people that I don't know and just have a conversation and start networking. Sterling and I talked about this kind of in another show recently where she's just extroverted off the charts and she can just go anywhere, have conversations with anyone. That is something that I'm envious of. And it's a skill that it is a skill, I think, and something that I need to to start working on. But I don't think you get that just, just as a um, skill that you're born with. I think you have to build that. Mm -hmm. Right. For me, the thing that I've learned is if I go to a networking event where there's 50 or more people, that is very intimidating. Mm-hmm. But I force myself to, I have to get three business cards, at least, of people that I have never talked to. Mm-hmm. And if I get those three business cards, I can follow up with people. But that that number, that goal, just like when you go to the gym, right? If you don't, if you don't go with a goal, with the XYZ of what you're going to do, mm-hmm. the WAD, then you're not going to do anything. You're just going to kind of, you're going to be on the phone, 
in a corner petting dog, right? <laughs> so if you go in with a goal, you're going to get something something out of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also kind of having some sort of a script that mm-hmm. you can follow, whether that's, hey, here's, here's three questions that you can ask anybody that you walk into a room. Do, doing something like that so that you have kind of a list of, of questions as icebreakers would probably be helpful. Again, I need to start building that script, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it's, it's really over-scheduling myself. I don't give myself enough time for prep or drive. Mm. But it, sound, it sounds silly, right? It sounds like a basic thing. But um, yesterday is a good example. Um, I had, you know, we had a big storm that came through Wednesday, Thursday, whenever. And a lot of my appointments got pushed. So I gave the ability for my customers to kind of dictate my time, right? So I had scheduled appointments. I had, I had appointments that started from 11 every 45 minutes until 4.30. Drained by the end of the day. Yeah. Some ran late, some ran early, and I didn't have enough time to go in between and prep. Nor do I give enough my, enough time. Okay, I know that from my house to here, you know, it's probably about thirty minutes. In reality, with traffic, it's about forty-five. Right? I don't give myself enough time leadway to get to that. Yeah, and that's something that I, I've battled with. I, I don't necessarily have to travel between clients like what you just mentioned, but if I'm in the office. And due to the nature of my role, I interface with so many different functions and teams in the business. And there are days when if I don't intentionally block off time on my calendar, I could end up with 15 half hour meetings for the entire day, just back to back to back to back. I'm scrambling to run to the bathroom, get something to drink and then go into the next next meeting. And by the end of the day, I am shot. Mm -hmm. I'm just fried. And so. The thing that has helped me is I'll just block off spots on my time. And now people on my team know that. They're like, hey, are you actually working here? Or is this like filler time for you? Because I need some time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Someone, um, I can't remember who this was. Um, one of the many books I've read um, said that we are only two to three weaknesses away from being exceptionally rich. Hmm. So for me, marketing... Facebook marketing, uh, scheduling, not being able to get out of my shell at, at networking meetings, that those to me were like kind of the three traits that I said, okay, I'm going to work on those. So I think every year, every two years, whatever that time frame may be, is I always encourage people take a weakness, define it, and do and define what you're going to do about it and force yourself to do it step by step by step. Well, so I kind of did that this year with the podcast mm-hmm. and the YouTube channel because that, that was definitely a weakness of mine. And I'm still on the public speaking side of things, which actually I think I posted a, a video, a short little video on Instagram or something a few weeks ago when I went to a Toastmasters event. And what really spurred that was that first BNI event that I came to. What's so crazy is, and I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name that I had to give his... uh, Chad. Chad. So, like, I was very comfortable giving Chad's, but then whenever I had to get up and talk about me, I just got, I locked up. And I think it's because I prepped so much because I wanted to deliver for Chad, this guy that I never met before, that that I was well prepared. But my takeaway was it's been a long time since I've done any sort of public speaking, and I need to start practicing. 
And so I signed up, started going to Toastmasters. I can't make it every every week, but I've gone a few times in the past few months, and it's starting to help. It's starting to get a little bit better. I talked to you recently about coming to the BNI events. That the scheduling is a little bit of a challenge for me, just trying to get there. But that's something that I'll probably start focusing on next year because I would love to do some public speaking events and talk about leadership. It's funny you say that. Uh oh, I've never told this to anybody. <clears throat> so. In the last, uh, what, are we, what are we in, November? Um, basically a month, month and a half. So I've been leading the B&I meetings. Yeah. So I'm the president this year. So for an hour and a half or more, mm-hmm. I have to wrangle 35 people plus 10 visitors, whatever. So I spend most of my Tuesday preparing for that, right? So by the time we start the meeting, by the time we get through it, and it's my turn to give my own commercial, personal commercial from my career, mm-hmm. I stumble. <laughs> I get through the point of, of motivating and, and doing this, this, this. And then when it gets to me, why I'm there, I'm at a loss. <laughs> well, that's okay. So if you want public speaking, you can be the president. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Come take over. I'll, uh, <laughs> well, I probably need to visit more than once before that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's do this. Let's transition into something... Uh, a little bit different than just these these talking points that that you and I were discussing earlier. So I get a lot of questions coming in from listeners and then even some of the the clients that I coach, and I've kind of queued up some of these questions over the past few months. And I thought, hey, how about you and I just cover some of these together? So I'm just going to read the question to you. And I'm curious on on your perspective. So. Not sure if you've talked about hiring or interviewing techniques before, but what factors and attributes go into finding the best fits, talents, and value adds for your department or company? That's a good question. You know, I don't really interview that much, but when I do, um, I try to bring in... So I think that HR does a great job in all companies, right? They do a job, a great job of the floor. What I call the floor is they do that basic, um, go through that alphabet soup of, you know, making sure that they fit within all of the metrics, right? Skill set wise. All the skill sets, mm-hmm. right. And then, um, or at least in my career, then they pass it on to the individual that would that they would be working with or that region president or whatever. So I think in, in my world, it's always the technique that I try to use is have somebody interviewing with you that could bring a, a second set of eyes, a second set of, of thought, but maybe an expert from that department. So people put a lot of fluff in their resume, I think. Um, we all do. But you're really uncovering things. Um, it, it, it's always beneficial to have two people uncovering those things. Some more. When I interviewed for Austin Bank, I had seven people in front of me, which was the most intimidating, toughest thing ever. But it was a a firework of questions back and forth to, for different subject matters. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, what do you think? Yeah, I love this topic. And and it's something that, you know, I've been fortunate or unfortunate in terms of being able to interview a lot of people over my career. And one of the things that I enjoy doing, I think it's important to have more than 
definitely just the hiring manager or one person interview somebody. I mean, you know, maybe it's okay in some instances, but I much prefer to have a few people get involved with the process. I think I read somewhere a number of years ago that Google did a study of once you get past about four people in the interview process, it's kind of diminishing returns in terms of time spent to ensure a good culture fit. Mm. So I think if you get if you get four people in a room that are fit into the culture of the organization and know the roles, the ins and outs of what this person will be focusing on, that you could probably get a good gauge on if they're going to be a good fit. So usually a process I like to follow is the let the the hiring manager or maybe even just somebody on the team do that initial interview to get a sense of, hey, are, are there skills where they need to be? Do they have the technical aptitude that we're looking for for this specific role? And if it's a green light, okay, bring them in. And then we'll have a panel interview. I like to get usually about three, sometimes four people in a room, in a big conference room to bring the person in. And I do that for a number of reasons. One, it gives you an indication of how they're going to handle a stressful situation. Mm-hmm. Because as you just mentioned, whenever you w- walk in and sit across the table from seven people, hmm, you're going to start getting nervous. Like, whoa, this is kind of, especially if it's in a big boardroom, you're like, oh, wow, am I really meant to be here? So for me, reading people is something that's very important. And I think that that gives you an opportunity to read how they're going to handle pressure and stress. Now, some people just maybe a car salesman, and they may be great at interfacing with people, which is fine. But also, it lets you, what you touched on, have a number of different perspectives where they can fire away different questions from all different angles. Mm -hmm. So you also get to see how they can adapt, how they can answer questions on the fly. And then the final thing that I like to do is I will actually step out of the room and then let the rest of the team have the conversation with them with without the boss mm. in the room. Mm-hmm. And then that way they can just let the truth fly. Yeah. And I think that gives the candidate kind of a sense of comfort of hey, this is this is what it's really like. Okay, now the boss is gone. This is what it's really like here. And so that's usually a process that I that I like to follow. And then every now and then depending on the nature of their role, maybe interview uh, introduce them to a few people in the business itself mm-hmm. that they might have to interface with but not like a formal interview. Just kind of introduce, hey, spend 5 minutes chatting and then and then yeah. go on. So Well, it's a good idea to to establish and see how that energy is going to be, right? Cuz we we spend so much time at work with those people with mm-hmm. with the person that you may be interviewing. So it's a good idea to have somebody there that is that they will be working with. And that, I think that gives some, some sort of power, quote unquote, to the person that you're bringing in to have inclusion. It does. And you know, one of the things that, um, I was actually having a conversation just about a week ago with a gentleman that works for a company where they do kind of behavioral assessments on the very, very front end before any interviewing starts, which he had a good point. He said, when people come in and say, Oh, are they a culture fit? What they really mean is that somebody they'd want to go have a beer with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, what is that relationship going to look like? So maybe they have the skills that you're looking for. Maybe they're a culture fit. But then whenever you actually look into their personality profile, maybe you're hiring somebody who is a very extroverted, outgoing, I personality type. But the nature of this role is going to be focused on consolidation of reporting. 
or financials. And so if they're going to be stuck dealing with numbers and data all the time and not interfacing with other people, which you may or may not be able to pick up on in the interview process, mm-hmm. that could be a little bit of a mismatch yeah. from, yeah, they're, they're great to hang out with, they're bubbly personality, but we need somebody who can focus on the data and really cram some numbers together. Yeah. So I think there's, that's another, another aspect that is often overlooked whenever it comes to hiring people. Had a couple of years ago, I had my a second interview with the bank, and uh, the hiring manager, he said, "Hey, let's just go to Woodson's. Let's just grab a beer. I don't want to talk anything about banking or anything. Let's just go after a tough work day and let's just meet up." And it was really just to see how are we going to work with each other. You know, how is? Do you have a lot of drama? Do you not? How are you with pressure? How are you just handling a conversation? Mm-hmm. How are you a people person or not? Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. You want to take this next one? Yeah. So what is, let me read the question. What is the best approach when I don't agree with or see eye to eye on something that I've been tasked with my immediate manager? Oh, so this is a, this is a good one. I have had some dumpster fire managers in my career. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've also had some really, really good ones. Is that an energy term? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Also had some really good ones. And I will say, I think the best approach, and this is something that's, that's worked well for me, is you have to build a relationship and trust with your manager. Whatever, it doesn't matter how much you disagree, there has to be an element of trust. And you do this by sitting down, having conversations, and getting to know them as an individual. Some people kind of refer to this as like kissing ass. and I don't really see it that way. I think it's doing what you have to do to ensure the success of your team. You know, it's funny. I had, I had a boss a few years ago that, oh, man, he was the bane of my existence. He was completely incompetent, not suited for the role he was in. <clears throat> Daniel, I swear to God, I only worked for him for nine months, but in that period of time, I can legitimately say I lost hundreds and hundreds of hours of sleep, just so frustrated and furious. When it came time for my annual review, the only feedback he had for me was, we get along great. (laughs) Okay, so that... Setting performance reviews aside, that's not the one thing. I mean, that's good to have that conversation, Mm -hmm. but my review was like 10 minutes long, and that was most of it. But my takeaway from that is the fact that, and I share this story with with people, is the importance of it doesn't matter how much you struggle, how much you don't see eye to eye, how much you don't agree with the decisions that they're making. You have to have that relationship there, Mm -hmm. which I was able to do. I basically convinced him that we were BFFs. Now, what that does in terms of your question, once you have that trust, it allows you to navigate the conversation in a way of, okay, I see your perspective. However, what if, what if we looked at this? Or, well, but you're not thinking about this. There's this aspect over here that we really need to consider. And usually what you will see if you're an expert in your field or 
kind of boots on the ground, you know what's going on. And especially as you get to higher levels of leadership, they become increasingly detached. So it's, some people will say it's the leader's responsibility, but I, I argue that, that both parties need mm-hmm. to be involved. And if you have poor leadership above, it's your responsibility to step up and lead up. Now you do that by enlightening that person, helping he, him or her understand this is what they're missing. That can be tricky and challenging because most people have this mindset of, hey, I hate you. You're supposed to be leading me, and here I am having to teach you how to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. But what this all comes down to is if you don't see eye to eye with somebody, it's your responsibility to close that gap and help them understand your perspective. Now, what you will find is you're not always going to get them there. I think if you put the effort in, more times than not, you can get them there to see your side of the story. But if you don't, at that point, you need to fall in line, do what they ask you to do, and move forward. When you do that, and you start, you go back to the team and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to focus on. Usually the team will say, hey, you know, I don't agree with that. Say, well, this is, this is what we're going to do. You can go in and maybe you navigate the project or you kind of, mm, what's the best way to put this? You can make tweaks and adjustments to ensure the success of the project, mm-hmm. as long as you have buy-in from above. So that's, that's kind of the approach that I like to take on it. It's very challenging to do, to set your ego to the side, build that relationship when you know it's going to fail, to be able to just fall in line and say, okay, I've done everything I possibly can to mitigate this risk. This is our orders. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and execute it. And if it does fail, it fails. Very unfortunate. Which happens. It does. It does happen. And maybe, hopefully, they'll learn to listen to you next time. Yeah. Very long-winded response, but does that kind of answer? It's a great answer. Great answer. Okay. Let's see. So we got another one here. When you're feeling negative or down about the work, company, or just in your personal life, how do you cope and stay positive for those around you and your team to not spread that negativity? So I asked uh, Chrissy this question a couple of days ago, yesterday. She said, go home and pet your dog. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, I think I think we all in our careers, we have a personal day. We have sick time. And I think if... Not every everyone comes in and they're not all roses and, and everything everything's peachy, right? People have bad days and people and, and shit happens, right? Someone dies or someone, you know, your dog gets hurt, whatever, but you can't take it out on the team. And I think it's it it's a leader's job to support. I think it's a leader's job to say, Hey, let's um, let's let's take a walk. Or sometimes I think it's a it's a leader's job just to listen, just to have a conversation. Again, become a person, become a human, and just put you put your interest aside and be a servant leader with that person and and listen. If it's hey let's uh, let's turn up some music in the office. It's boring. Let's turn up some music. Let's have fun. But sometimes there are bad days, and sometimes maybe take that person out to lunch do something a little bit different to bring light in their day. And if it doesn't work, maybe maybe it's good to go home and pet your dog. Mm-hmm. I love that. 
you know, it's interesting that you say, let's take a walk. It, I immediately flash back to, I think you know this, I lived in Corpus Christi for a year running an integration. And very, very stressful, very stressful times. There are a lot of times when the team, everyone on the team, or maybe specific members of the team, would just kind of reach their breaking point. I mean, at this point, whenever we got close to, to year end, we were doing a fun, an ERP implementation, the entire team, we were all working 90 hours a week for three weeks straight just to make sure that we met the deadline. So when you do that, people in it, we were sleeping at the facility. We uh-huh. had we had a room with big comfy comfy couches and we were taking turns. People reach their breaking point. And that's where you really see what people are made of. Now, as a leader, to your point, there were times when I would see somebody who's at that point and say, Hey, there's a really big parking lot out back. Let's go do a few laps. Mm-hmm. And we would just go outside and, and talk. The fresh air, the ability to just get it off of your chest, that's huge. It made all the difference in the world. And there were some times I'd say, hey, you know what? Just go home. We got this. Mm-hmm. Go get some rest for a few hours or you know, come back tomorrow. Whatever that, that sounds like, whatever that looks like. So as leaders, I think that's how we can help our team. Be empathetic. Be understanding. Even if you're frustrated and you're, you're like, oh my God, we can't do this without without Jason over here. If Jason is breaking and having a mental breakdown as a leader, you've got to be able to pull him to the side and say, Hey, we will figure this out. Mm -hmm. You need to take care of yourself. So now if we transition over to the individual side of things, this is where self-awareness comes into play. If you feel that you're at that breaking point, if you feel like you cannot go anymore, which I think David Goggins talks a lot about, hey, like when you think you're there, you're not, trust me. But when it comes down to it, you have to be self-aware enough to, to realize if you snapped at somebody, maybe that moment isn't the time to turn around and apologize because you're so like furious and off the deep end. But you need to step away. Say, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to go I'm gonna go pet Brinkley for a little while. I'm going to take her for a walk. I feel a little bit better. But coming back... And if you do snap at somebody, having that very real conversation, say, hey, I didn't mean it. I'm really sorry. That also goes a long way. Mm -hmm. All of that to be said, I kind of danced around the topic, but self-awareness as an individual and then as a leader, empathy to take care of your team. I also think thanking your team is a big deal. Mm -hmm. You got to have your love language, whatever that love language may be. For me, it's, it's numbers and appreciation and just thank you for your hard work. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a, well, and so that speaks to, to knowing the people on your team. Some people, they just might want that cash. They don't care. And others, all you got to do, take them to lunch and express or buy them a bottle of vodka that they love mm-hmm. or want, you know, whatever that comes out to, but knowing the people on your team and knowing what is meaningful for them. I've had people, I've had people that have turned down pay increases like, mm, no, which blew my mind. But yeah, I've had people that have turned it down and said, no, I don't, that's, I don't really care about that. (laughs) So knowing the people on your team is also an important thing. Absolutely. All right. Let's see here. What else? You want to take this second to last one? Which one do you have? Yeah. So that, that gets to kind of segues into the next question. How can you still remain effective as a leader when the effort may feel wasted? 
I should have asked you this. Damn it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> you know, this is challenging. I think we've all been at this place in our lives and careers. It's especially difficult and challenging if you have a supervisor that doesn't appreciate you, or at least you don't believe they appreciate you. And whenever I flash back to mm, probably 12 years ago now, I had a guy that I reported to that, man, I, I genuinely thought he hated me. He would rip me to shreds in team meetings. We'd walk out of a team meeting and everybody like, damn, what did you do to piss him off? <laughs> and God, it was, it was tough. And I think for me, at least at that point in my life, I was, I was on a mission. I was trying to, to learn and grow and building a data center and, and trying to understand my team and, there, there was, I was so intrinsically driven that that was an outside factor that I could not let get to me mm -hmm. because I had my mission. And I think that's important for people to realize whenever it comes to like, what is your mission? What is your purpose? Because if you're just coming in, clocking in and just going through the motions, it makes it much more difficult to put up with something like that or be mm -hmm. in a situation where you feel like all of your effort is, is wasted. However, if you have that mission and that objective, it allows you to kind of view it through a slightly different lens where you realize, Hey, that sucks. I just got my ass handed to me. Okay. Let me rewind then. Let me go the other way around. When you are the leader mm -hmm. and you're directing your employees, mm -hmm. right? And, you get the uh, the feedback that your efforts are wasted. So you have employees that are not wanting to follow because they think that they shouldn't. Mm. So if they aren't feeling appreciated from an organization perspective? Well, or maybe th that particular project, they feel like it's a waste of time. Or how do you continue to keep those people motivated? Mm. Um, that one's also pretty tricky. I think that, you know, I think for me, whenever situations like this arise, it's, it's more of a, Hey, let's get this done and off our plate type of a mm -hmm. thing. And you know, it's going to suck. I don't want to do it. None of us want to do this, but the longer we sit here and complain about this, the longer it's going to sit there undone. So let's just roll up our sleeves. Let's just get it done and get it off our plates. And sometimes, sometimes that means pulling somebody else into the project or into the conversation of, hey, like we've got two weeks to get this knocked out, but if we pull somebody over, we can get it done in a week. Let's just get it done. Let's just get up behind us, which it's difficult to kind of get over that hump. But as a leader, this is one of those situations where if you dive in and you start doing the work with them, mm -hmm. At that point, people are going to say, oh, damn, well, the boss is doing it. Yeah, let's go ahead and get in on this and, yep. and get it done. And, you know, that's one of the things when it comes to, to being a leader. Sometimes you just got to step up and, and lead and start doing. Great answer. All right. I passed. <laughs> was, that a, was that an A or A plus? A or plus. B? Okay. All right. All right. I'll take it. Okay. Let's see here. <clears throat> 
All right. So what do you do when you want a leadership role but have not yet had the opportunity? That's a good question. Um, I think we've all been in that position where we want to be the leader, but we haven't been called on to be the leader. I think, uh, like we mentioned earlier, it's important to to step up. It's important to do something different. Um, for example, I'm going to give you an example. Um, now that I'm running, not me running a business, now that my wife and I are running the business where she does 99% of the work, and I just show up and change the light bulb. Anyways, when she is, um, when we're running a business and we're looking for people to step up, it's hard to pick somebody. It's, it's very tough to trust somebody, to give that trust over for whatever topic that may be. So I think it's, it, you have to somehow implore that person to let people, let your employees know to step up if that's what they want to do. But if you're the employee on that side and you want a leadership position, you have to you have to show why, right? You you have to start with with why. If I were in my manager's shoes, supervisor, owner, whoever it is that you're working with, why would they want to promote you? Why would they want to give you a leadership role? So, and once you paint that in your mind, then do that. I love that. And hearing your story, one of the things that came to mind for me was probably, this is probably about 15 years or so ago, I had a director of IT that I reported to, and we had the entire IT team come together. There was probably about 40, well, there's 42 of us. I don't know how I remember that. But there's 42 of us at that point in time. And we had the, the entire team. So we had all of the managers, all of my peers, all the admins, all the IT support personnel, everybody was in the room. And he got up and he was giving his presentation and he's, he spent a, a lot of time talking about the importance of leadership. And he pointed out that we're all leaders, every single person in the room, even the new IT support specialists that just started, they lead by example. You don't have to have a title to lead because, you know, what is, what is leadership? It's, it's the ability to inspire and influence Mm-hmm. Titles don't inspire and influence. It comes down to building trust with people and then helping helping others achieve the things that they want to achieve. And you do that by by influence and by helping people. And so, you know, whenever I, whenever I read this and think, okay, well, you haven't gotten the opportunity to lead yet. Well, we all have an opportunity every single day. Maybe not to to lead a team of people, but to go back to your point. You, you don't have to lead a team of people to, to be a strong leader. You do that by setting the example and by inspiring and influencing people. So if you want a leadership role, I think, one, you've got to let that be known. You can't be shy about it. You've got to have a conversation with your supervisor or maybe peers or, or maybe others in the business. So maybe you're an IT manager and you want to be a director and you've got a great relationship with this vice president over here go to them and not say, Hey, I want to be a director, but you go to them and say, Hey, I have aspirations to accomplish this. Do you have any advice or guidance? And what you're doing is planting that seed and you start planting seeds at different pockets and different areas in the organization. This is also part of the reason that networking is so powerful. And then you start letting those people know, but then 
You've got to act. You have to show them, to your point, you have to show them why you deserve that role, why you should be sitting in the director's chair. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's a really good topic. You probably talk through a lot of different ways of accomplishing that, but those are some of my, my initial thoughts. That's a good answer. So let me read this next one. Um, how do you continue to develop leaders in such a turbulent and delicate state of not only the mindset of the individual, but knowing the state of the company isn't strong? You know, in, in oil and gas, there's a lot of turbulence. When times are good, they're great. I mean, money's flying around. It's just, it's crazy how, how easy things are. And actually, a lot of bad leaders can hide in the organization during those times. But when things go bad, which they inevitably do in oil and gas, but then a lot of industries, you know, there's, there's cycles in many industries. When the business is struggling, usually morale starts to dip. Mm -hmm. It starts to take a hit. And culture plays a big piece into how you're going to come out of that. Do you have a strong culture where the team is, they understand the challenges, they understand the reality that they're going to lose some of their peers and friends and coworkers so that the corporation can survive? So whenever I think about how do you, how do you develop leaders, how do you make it through that, well... It's kind of trial by fire, really, I think. And I'm going to use the pandemic as an example. What we saw was an amplification of what already existed. So strong teams and strong leaders were performing at their highest. Weak teams and weak leaders were circling the drain. Mm -hmm. And so you can carve this up into kind of a rule of thirds. You're always going to have your high performers. So top 33%, they're always going to be high performers no matter what you do. They're intrinsically driven. They're just going to get things done. Then you're going to have that middle tier that maybe they could be developed. Maybe if, if someone invested in them, they could then maybe not make it all the way up to that top tier, but you get them on board and they could really perform highly. And then you're going to have the bottom third that this is going to sound horrible, but it's wasted effort, mm-hmm. really. So focusing on that middle third, that middle tier, and guiding them through that process and realize, hey, yes, this is a very turbulent time in the organization. Yes, I know it sucks that that person got a promotion in the middle of a downturn. Yeah. Mm. Life sucks, <laughs> right? That's that's kind of how, how it all comes to pass. But during those challenging times, you have to look at it as, what is this teaching me? What is the opportunity to learn here? How can I learn from this? And once you start to view it through that lens, things change. Instead of asking, why is this being done to me? And thinking, what is this trying to teach me? At that point, that's when things get real and you start to see who is capable of truly great things. So to answer your question, I think you need to identify those people that can be flipped, that can be coached and taught and mentored. And if there are some people that are just never going to get there, they're just going to circle the drain and be the victim the, all, the t- all the time, you have to make the very difficult decision of how long are they going to stick around. So if you do have those people that are 
that want to step up, mm-hmm. but they're busy doing what they're doing, right? They're they're just tied down with the busyness of of work, of their job, of their project, of whatever. But they they don't have the time or the ability to show their manager or to step up. What do they do? So you come in, you come in at, at eight and you leave at five and you work longer than normal and but you're just busy, busy, busy. How do you show your 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 supervisor, your manager, the owner, whatever that your management material? Well, you know, one of the things that I've seen a lot in the IT realm is a lot of IT professionals, they spend a vast majority of their time fighting fires. And part of that is because they can't ever quite get to that stable state. They can't quite get there to where they can actually have a little bit of a breather and then focus on, hey, how can I actually start to look up and out instead of down and in and start thinking more strategically? So how do we get there? Well, I think each fire that you fight, you have to start thinking about how can I actually permanently resolve this problem instead of just putting a Band-Aid on it. Now, it takes a little bit of a shift in your mindset. Sometimes you got to spend a little bit of money, which can, can be challenging. But what you have to do is chip away at whatever it is that you're working on and instead of just like, oh, fix, next, fix, next, fix, next, spend a little bit extra time. Maybe you've got to work 45 hours a week. Maybe you got to work 50. Maybe you got to spend a little bit of time on the weekend chipping away at something to permanently fix it so that it's never an issue again. And what will happen is kind of similar to the flywheel effect. Once you fix that and then fix this and then fix this thing over here, eventually there'll be fewer and fewer fires that you need to fight. Once you have that free time, That's when the most important piece or aspect of this comes into play is you can't sit back and go play video games. You have to say, okay, now I have that free time. Now I've got to start looking up and out and figuring out, hey, how do I transition into a leadership role? And you do that by thinking more strategically, thinking more, looking up and out instead of down and in. I went way down a rabbit hole and I don't know if I answered your question, did I? Do you start listening to the Way of the Wolf podcast? That's the key. <laughs> that is the absolute key because we talk about clothes. We talk about lending. We talk about all of these these hard questions. That's no, the key. But seriously, I think you do. You take that initiative personally to, you know, everyone's got a little bit of a drive to work. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if you're working from home in these delicate times, maybe you don't. But you still have time to read a book. You still yeah. have time to listen to a podcast like this. Yeah. Well, so that's a great point. If you're listen to audiobook, if you're sitting in an hour of traffic each way, listen to a podcast, listen to something that's going to help you build those skills on top of like getting your own house in order. You've also got to continue to invest in yourself. Hmm. Yeah. Good save. I appreciate you stepping in on that. I went too far down a rabbit hole. (laughs) So there's, there's a, an employee shortage, Mm -hmm. right? There's an employee shortage in many industries, and especially in my industry in banking and in the nail industry, which are completely two different aspects. But I can kind of figure out why. What about your industry? Do you are you seeing an employee shortage 
and especially now with the new rules coming out in December with vaccinations and masks and weekly testing. How is that working with you? I am very fearful that OSHA's new ETS is going to obliterate the oil and gas industry. Labor, we're in such a tight labor market right now. And what I've seen over the past, we'll say six months, there's actually a, a phrase dubbed the, the great resignation, where what, what has happened is people have, well, the power dynamic has shifted from employer to employee. So now people are realizing, one, hey, I can survive on a lot less money. Mm-hmm. I don't have to put up with this toxic culture. I don't have to put up with this asshole of a boss. Mm-hmm. I can go somewhere else. And then we're seeing companies, some of them that are requiring people to come back into the office full time. You got to come into the office five days a week and you got to wear a mask. Oh, well, some people don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. They'd rather start their own company. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to start to see this proliferation of a gig economy where people are just starting their own businesses. You They're know, I've following. seen that a lot. I've seen that in the last, uh, ever since the pandemic started. There's some stat that the most businesses, private entities, LLCs open have been in the last couple of years. Exactly. For that same purpose, right? If I've been doing what I'm doing for the last 10, 15 years, and I know my customers, I know the industry, I know the profit market, or, or the your industry, however that works, mm-hmm. right? Your, your revenue and expenses. Um, I can do this myself. Why wouldn't I, right? Exactly. So people are starting on a small scale to do it themselves, and then they and then your boss calls and says, "Hey, now you're not working from home. Go back to driving an hour and a half to downtown." You're going to say, "Well, I'd rather not. Mm-hmm. I'd rather just do this myself." Exactly. And so that actually feeds right back into what we're seeing in our industry. So there's a lot of people that are just going and doing their own thing. And then I'm actually starting to see quite a bit of we'll say Oilfield Services or OFS consulting companies that will have contractors that will say, hey, you can have my contractor for a thousand bucks a day or you know, whatever the number is. And mid-size services companies, instead of having to go hire and recruit and deal with retention, they'll say, all right, fine, I'm going to give you a thousand bucks a day. It's, it's, maybe it's a 30% markup over what we would pay an individual to be an employee, but it's guaranteed and you've got access to it and you can flex up and down. If you catch some more jobs, okay, you pull on those contractors. If you lose jobs, okay, cool. They're just contractors. You go away for you know, a few weeks or whatever that looks like. So that flexibility is, is extremely valuable. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Now, as it ties into OSHA's ETS that's coming out, this only apply right now. It only applies to employers with over a hundred employees. Now, I've sat in on a bunch of webinars and people talk about, okay, well, what if my entity structure is this? Mm-hmm. I've got sixty over here and forty over here. Well, if they collapse into a larger entity, I definitely advise go have conversations with legal counsel on on those types of situations because there are, are laws that come together to say, hey, your overarching entity is this. Your holding company or whatever. But one thing that is interesting is with the ETS that's coming out, there's not really any clarity around what it looks like for a contract company doing work for a larger corporation. So like if we have a thousand employees and we pull in this contract agency that has 20 contractors, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of clarity around do those contractors have to divulge their 
are they vaccination card? Yeah, exactly. Because do they have to divulge their, their cards? Do they fall into the testing pool? Because you can imagine the challenges associated with a thousand employee corporation. And now I've got contractors coming and going all of the time. How are we going to track which contractors on which job at which time? That's an absolute administrative nightmare. So I think what we're going to see, and unfortunately, the guidance is that has to be in effect January 4th is when everything is like official. You have to have your program in about a month. You have to have all that ironed out. But then all of the testing and everything has to be finalized and going by January 4th. Now, I suspect that was done to kind of get through the holiday rush for like UPS and FedEx and just all of these like retail stores. But what we're going to see is... We thought labor was tough before. It's going to be an absolute nightmare because mm-hmm. the however many, I don't know what the latest stat is in terms of vaccination rates, but we'll call it a third of the country is still not vaccinated. And it's not because they're on the fence. It's because they don't want to get the damn shot. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get into politics, but this is something that's very challenging and a lot of corporations are struggling with. And it's so politicized, just so, so politicized. And I think that's what's so unfortunate is now it's for some reason okay to discriminate against people Mm -hmm. because of, uh, yeah. Okay, so how is this going to affect the labor? Man, I told myself I was never going to get political (laughs) on the show. All right, so what this is going to do is it's going to make it even more difficult, especially in the oil and gas industry, for companies to, to do work. Mm-hmm. And there, there is kind of this mindset within the oil and gas industry, like, well, hey, everybody has to do it, so it's not like they're just going to quit. I'm going to argue, watch. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because on, I'm on the HR side of things. I'm on the safety side of things. I see what's going on. And I know the percentages of people in this industry, at, at least in our company, that are not vaccinated and are not going to get vaccinated. And then as an employer, you think, okay, the cost of a vaccination is maybe a hundred dollars. Let's just say they're, they're not going to burden that cost. They're going to pass it on to the employee. So now just because somebody works at a company larger than a hundred employees, they're going to take a $5,000 a year cut in pay Mm -hmm. because now they've got to go pay for their own tests. They've got to go get, nasally raped every week. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'll leave that in. Or not. <laughs> but it's it, it's it's very very unfortunate. And it's all it's going to get tied up in courts cuz so many governors are now suing and, and like it's this whole big thing. And so, you know, my guidance to anybody that's having to deal with this right now is be prepared, figure out cuz you're going to have to have a technology platform mm-hmm. to be able to track keep track of all of this stuff. You're going to have to hire employees to manage all of the testing and figure out, oh, well, John didn't get his test done. I got to chase him down. You're, you're going to have to hire employees. You're going to have to pay for a technology platform to be able to manage it. If any of you know of any publicly traded IT companies that build a platform like that, invest in it now. I promise you it's going to blow up. So all of that to be said, labor is going to continue to be very, very challenging for the foreseeable future. I don't see that changing anytime soon in, mm-hmm. a, across a lot of different industries. Man, I got, <laughs> Ooh, man, you got me all worked up. Good all right. <laughs> it's, it's real stuff that people have a question about. 
you know, it is. I think we have to talk about it. It is. It's very real. And again, it's so politicized and people get so emotionally charged because they, they stand firm in their convictions, Mm -hmm. especially people like if they're not vaccinated now, you're going to have to hold them down to, to put that in their arm. Yeah. But there's no, um, nothing's been given to those people that have had COVID, right? Because if you've had COVID, you're probably better off than if you were vaccinated. Yeah. Because you have those natural antibodies. Exactly. I saw uh, natural immunity is 13 times stronger than the vaccination. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, you could say, oh, well, follow the science. Okay. Well, they're ignoring certain subsets of, of data. They're ignoring certain bits of it and suffering from what I confirmation bias, which I think is unfortunate. And uh, there's, we could do a whole episode on, on the jab, but stay away from that. Back to leadership. Yep. You had some good leaders. You had some bad leaders. What is out of all of the leadership styles that you've seen and the leadership styles that you have, what has worked the most? Mm, I don't know if I'd define it like as a specific leadership style as much as it's a lesson that you had that shaped you to be a great leader. I could probably boil it down to servant leadership is probably one of the the best approaches to take. And I think, you know, this past week I sat in and was on a panel for at an operational excellence in oil and gas event. And we were talking about skills. And one of the things I touched on was the importance of hard, hard skills versus soft skills. Hard skills are something that, in my opinion, are increasingly becoming commoditized. Anybody can go on Google, anybody can go on YouTube, and they can figure stuff out if, if there's enough drive there. The soft skills, they're a little bit more difficult to define, but when you think about compassion and empathy and, and things like that, that's, those are now kind of superpowers mm-hmm. when you think about it. Mm-hmm. You think about any leader that somebody looks up to or you ask, hey, who was the best leader? They're not going to come down to the asshole that ripped me to shreds but also taught me more than I could ever imagine about pivot tables and data manipulation. Like, yes, I, I value that. But at the end of the day, I'm going to think back to those that were compassionate and would listen mm-hmm. and act and really have that that level of, of trust. So for me, I think if you're a leader, you need to have a very real conversation with yourself and say, hey, am I being compassionate? Am I empathetic to what my team is feeling? Am I actually focused on them and their success, or is this all about me? Mm-hmm. And I've, I've talked about this before. Early on in my career, it was all about Sean, all about how much cash I could stack. And over the past five to six years, I've realized that it was never about me. It, it, it has to be about your team and helping them be successful. So I kind of danced around it, but I think I covered it. It's beautiful. Man, I always enjoy these conversations. Yeah. Such great, great content. Any other knowledge you want to share with the listeners before we drop off? I think we've done a lot. We have. I, I think the the whole basis of all of this, that kind of a big summary is be human. Be human and be empathetic and know your team because you're going to spend a lot of time with your team. So treat them as if you as how you want to be treated. I love it. 
Yeah. Couldn't end it on a better note. All right, everybody, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Hopefully this Q&A session has been helpful. I went on a rant unlike anything I've ever done before, so we'll see if that makes it in the final cut. But, Daniel, thank you again for coming on the show. To all you listeners, thank you so much for all of your support. Hopefully and, I don't lose questions. too many. And, and for all for the, the questions. questions. Yes, thank you. Great, great questions. Please keep them coming, and y'all have a good one.